Welcome to the Melancholy of Class podcast, a podcast where we discuss texts that have been formative to my understanding of social class and my place in it. In the four previous podcasts, we've looked at the work of Mark Fisher and Walter Benjamin. Today, we take a sharp turn, or maybe not, and we discuss Clarice Lispector's novella, her last work, a project she waited her entire life to work on and wrote and completed as she was dying, The Hour of the Star. In this podcast, I'll begin with uh, some background um, on Lispector, and I'll be reading an excerpt from The Melancholy of Class from the chapter on Lispector titled The Death Drive. Then we will look at Clarice Lispector, one aspect of Clarice Lispector's resistance, her later work. Before anything else, the opening song was from the Falls album Perverted by Language, and the song was Hotel Bloedel. 
In an interview with Julio Lerner for TV Cultura, Clarice Lispector described her final writing project, the novella The Hour of the Star, as, quote, the story of a girl who was so poor that all she ate was hot dogs, unquote. That's not the story, though, she continued. The story is about a crushed innocence in anonymous misery. This idea of a crushed innocence and anonymous misery is the axis upon which all of Lispector's work revolves. Lispector, a Jewish Ukrainian, was forced to flee with her family. They migrated to Brazil, where they lived in Recife in the Northeast. In Recife, Lispector's mother died when she was nine, and her father struggled to find a means to support the family. In the same TV interview, Lispector has asked Clarice, what did your father do professionally? This is a common question used to determine one, determine one social class. Lispector's face in the frame during the interview appears sad. Her eyes turned away, her mouth half open. The question is a form of wounding. You can answer and remain fixed in your social class, or you can lie, or of course you can answer obliquely. Lispector tells the truth. She responds, a sales representative, things like that. Indeed, Lispector was intimate with precarity. In her preface to The Hour of the Star, she writes, I dedicate it, this book, to the memory of my former poverty when everything was more sober and dignified and I had never eaten lobster. My truest life is unrecognizable, Lispector writes in The Hour of the Star. Extremely interior, and there's not a single word that defines it. The sentiment of being inexplicable to others speaks directly to Lispector's own experience. Though the child of immigrants raised in poverty, when Lispector became a recognized writer, she appeared to the Brazilian middle class as a member of their class. And yet, at the same time, she appeared mysterious, an enigma. This seeming strangeness is due to the middle class's blindness to the working class. They are unable to comprehend Lispector because they are unable to see beyond the confines of their own social class. Like Barbara Loden, who appears incomprehensible to middle class women, Lispector excised from her social class with her melancholia, her alienation from middle class society, and her removal from the literary world appears incomprehensible as well. By marrying her law school classmate, Maury Gargal Valente, who upon graduation became a diplomat, Lispector moved from the working class to the middle class. Lispector never abandoned her origins, though, continuing to write about the poor and marginalized up until the hour of the star, written as she was dying. Her childhood always remains intact in the work and within her. Oh, manifesto da si, si dead, she writes. That is the river, that is the clock, it is Recife. I see it more clearly now. That is the house, my house, the bridge, the river, the prison, the square blocks of buildings, the stairway where I no longer stand. Like Maccabea, the female protagonist in The Hour of the Star, who, Lispector writes, always notice small and insignificant things, Lispector remains similarly acutely aware of the world seeing everything. As Lispector writes in Literature and Justice, Ever since I have come to know myself, the social problem has become has been more important to me than any other issue. In Recife, the black shanty towns were the first truth I encountered. 
This contradiction, that of living as a member of the middle class while identifying with her precarious childhood, resulted in alienation and melancholia. When she moved to Rio, she left the place that had formed her. This loss resulted in a wound and a void that could not be filled in with anything. As an adult, Lispector suffered from melancholia, a condition that worsened as the years passed. In Switzerland, where she was stationed with her husband, she saw a psychoanalyst who prescribed pills to alleviate her depression. But because her depression was a symptom of her melancholia, the external manifestation of it, the pills were unable to alleviate it. Surrounded by people who could not see her, people who felt separate, who she felt separate from, Lispector retreated further into her interior world. Yes, she writes in The Hour of the Star, I have no social class, marginalized as I am. Yes, the upper class considers me a weird monster. The middle class worries I might unsettle them. The lower class never comes to me. The term monster and monstrous appear repeatedly throughout Lispector's work. She felt herself a monster, or rather, she felt herself seen by others as a monster. For example, in the hour of the star, she asks, who hasn't ever wondered, am I a monster, or is this what it means to be a person? According to the Oxford English Dictionary, a monster is a mythical creature which is part animal and part human, or combines elements of two or more animal, animal forms, and is frequently of great size and ferocious appearance. Later, more generally, any imaginary creature that is large, ugly, and frightening. Monster, then, may be a working-class Jewish woman from northern Brazil who passes as a middle-class member of the Brazilian bourgeoisie, one part intellectual, one part peasant, one part worker, and one part diplomat's wife. As an anonymous Northeasterner, Lispector was monstrous in the eyes of the middle class. Then later, when she was seen as a member of the middle class, she was seen as a sacred monster. In Escobo, she writes, One of the things that makes me unhappy is this story of the sacred monster. Others fear me for no reason, and I end up fearing myself. Here, Lispector articulates how we are trained through the constant interpolation of shame connected to our social class to despise ourselves. Abandoning our class background is always an option. We see this possibility in the hour of the star, specifically in Lispector's creation of Olimpico, Maccabea's boyfriend, and Gloria, her best friend. When Maccabea meets Olimpico, she immediately recognizes herself in him. But he has internalized the society's beliefs and values, their sense of entitlement, cruelty, and their hatred of the working class and the poor. Olimpico de Jesus, Jesus, Lispector writes, worked in a metals factory, and she, Maccabea, didn't even notice he didn't call himself a worker but a metallurgist. He has internalized self-consciousness, something Maccabea does not have. Maccabea does not have. Unlike her, he is aware of the systems of hierarchy, his place in them, and the skills necessary to propel himself out from his class. He, Olimpico, was more susceptible to survive than Maccabea because it wasn't by chance that he had killed a man, a rival of his, in the back of beyond, the, lo the long jackknife entering softly, softly the backwoodman's liver. He had kept this crime an absolute secret, which gave him the power a secret gives, Lispector writes. Maccabea falls in love with Olimpico because she sees herself in him. 
He is also precarious. He is also a laborer. But Olimpico sees his own lower class standing in her and, as a result, despises her for it. Indeed, as Lespector writes, having killed and stealing made him more than a random occurrence. They gave him some class. They made him a man whose honor had been defended. Olimpico leaves Maccabea for her best friend Gloria because doing so helps him move out of his class. Quote, but when he, Olimpico, saw Gloria, Maccabea's co-worker, he immediately realized she had class, end quote. As the specter continues, the fact that she was a carioca made her belong to the longed-for clan from the south. Seeing her, he immediately guessed that, though ugly, Gloria was well-fed, and that made her quality goods. His cruelty represents the violence that is inherent in a class-based society. To absorb the capitalist culture's beliefs and values is to become complicit in it. In the case of Olimpico, this means seeing oneself and others as mere objects and seeing relationships solely for their transactional aspect. This is precisely what Olimpico does. In fact, though Maccabea is surrounded by people of her own class, Olimpico, Gloria, and the psychic, each of them has absorbed the beliefs of society that people are to be utilized as means to move oneself forward. This self-erasure and the erasure of other working-class people to make money and acquire more capital is a result of capitalism. Because Maccabea has nothing they can extract, Lampico and Gloria ignore her. They're like the doctor Maccabea visits. Quote, this doctor had no point whatsoever. Medicine was just to make money and never for love of his profession or of the sick. Unquote. He saw his patients as rejects of society like himself. He knew, Lispector writes, he was out of date with medicine and clinical novelties, but it was good enough for poor people. His dream was to have money and do exactly what he wanted. Nothing. Maccabea, on the other hand, does not engage in transactional relationships. She does not objectify herself or others. Indeed, she isn't aware, until she meets the psychic, of her own class standing. It is precisely this aspect of her that makes her appear idiotic to others, as Rodrigo, the male narrator, explains. She had never figured out how to figure things out. She didn't know how the structures of power worked or how she might manipulate or use other people to gain access to this power. This not knowing is considered by others to be the evidence of her idiocy. Similarly, Maccabea is curious. She asks questions. This is not the case with her boyfriend or co-worker or others of her class who, instead of looking at the world and asking questions about it, expend all their energy trying to propel themselves up the class ladder. Indeed, what Maccabea is criticized for is not her philosophical inquiries, her curiosity regarding why things are the way they are, but rather her ignorance regarding how to use others. In fact, the entire book is described by Lispector as a question. I swear this book is made without, without words. It is a mute photograph. This book is a silence. This book is a question. So there was some background on Lispector. That was a brief excerpt from the chapter on Lispector from the Melancholy of Class. And I want to talk more specifically about um, one form of her resistance to assimilation and focus specifically on her um, late writing, which is The Hour of the Star, of course, and also some of her um, short stories that she wrote toward the end of her life. Um, here's a quote by Lispector. She writes, But there are those who die of hunger, thousands. My incessant question is, what can I do for them? 
My response is to write at length an adage. I could suffer the other's hunger in silence, but an alto voice makes me sing. I sing opaque and black. And this singing opaque and black, right, this seems like um, a description of her work, and I think more specifically her later work. So toward the end of her life, Clarissa Spector looked back at her previous work, these beautiful short stories and novels, elliptical in nature, with a strong focus, focus on language, with the wish to burn all of it down. What her middle-class readership viewed as enigmatic, exotic, she saw as stifled work constructed of artifice. And it was during her last years that Lispector radically changed her writing. Lispector, who grew up in poverty but moved up in class through marriage, included references to those living on the margins throughout her work. For instance, in her novel The Passion According to G.H., a novel that tells the story of a middle-class woman who suffers an existential breakdown when she is forced to encounter the living quarters of her maid. But in her late work, the specter turned her focus entirely toward those left outside the literary canon, focusing exclusively on poverty and on the now. Her insistence on poverty in her late work was not merely the act of writing about poverty, as she'd already done in her previous journalistic work, for example, but instead a poetics of poverty, which is to say a writing that incorporates impoverishment. Rather than merely showing the reader interactions between the middle class and the working class and the poor, as she had done in some of her short stories and novels, in her later work, the Spectre's works include this very interaction within the text. For instance, where, as I mentioned a moment ago, in The Passion According to G.H., the Spectre shows a middle class woman being forced to encounter the reality of her class privilege and its effects on others. In her late work, the reader becomes the middle class woman in the novel. In other words, rather than narrating an encounter with the poor, the reader of Lispector's later work is forced to encounter poverty. As Sonia Runcader writes, and I apologize, I'm sure I just mispronounced her last name. Um, as she writes in A Poetics of Impoverishment, Clarice Lispector's narrative of the 1970s. In Lispector's late narratives, no one can be exposed to the destitution of these characters without having his or her own vision of the world affected. But poverty, poverty tends to be presented in Lispector's literature not simply as a theme, but as the very condition under which she herself, or a narrator, writes. This is most explicit in her late, late work, the novella The Hour of the Star, and her late short stories. This change in her writing aesthetic came about due to her increasing concern about social class. The work she made during these years, writing that includes The Hour of the Star and the short story Beauty and the Beast or the Enormous Wound, was diaristic, making use of montage, fragments, paratexts, and topics that the literary world deemed or deems unworthy, poverty, for instance, and the abject. The result are texts that neither describe nor or mere aesthetic constructions, bringing out pleasure or escape for the reader, for example. Rather, it is writing that conveys real life. As Roncada writes, Lispector's late style, a declaration of war against her own previous aesthetics and on the institution of literature, coincided with the entrance into her, work, uh, into her writing of degrading images of poverty and starvation. Her final work, The Hour of the Star, a short text chronicling the life and demise of a young, working, poor woman, exemplifies this type of writing. At the opening to the text, Lispector writes the following. 
Even as I write this, I feel ashamed of pouncing on you with a narrative that is so open and explicit. A narrative, however, from which blood surging with life might flow only to coagulate into lumps of trembling jelly. With this story, will this story become my own coagulation one day? Who can tell? If there is any truth in it, and clearly the story is true even though invented, let everyone see it reflected in himself, for we are all one and the same person. And he who is not poor in terms of money is poor in spirit or feeling, for he lacks something more precious than gold, for there are those who do not possess that essential essence. How do I know all that is about to follow if it is unfamiliar and something I've never experienced? In a street in Rio de Janeiro, I caught a glimpse of perdition on the face of a girl from the Northeast. Without mentioning that, I myself was raised as a child in the Northeast. Besides, I know about certain things simply by living. Anyone who lives knows, even without knowing that he or she knows. So, dear readers, you know more than you imagine, however you may deny it. In addition to this form of direct confrontation with the reader, a strategy Lispector employs throughout the book through the voice of her male narrator, she also describes her main character, Maccabea, without romanticism. Maccabea, who may or may not be constructed loosely on Lispector's life herself, her own life, is not presented as an aspirational character. Lispector does not utilize the usual trope of the working class, working poor character, overcoming societal difficulties, and then moving up the class ladder. To be clear, though she was not transformed into a polished middle-class character in a story of overcoming all odds, Maccabea is indeed a heroine, a saint-like character with a rich interior life, a thoughtful and insightful protagonist. By merely portraying poverty and the lives of the working class as they are, without romanticizing or aligning them with stereotypes or tropes, Lispector is already engaged in an act of transgression, forcing the reader out of her comfort zone, presenting her with a series of existential shocks, each with the possibility of shocking her awake from her ignorance, willed or otherwise. Along with presenting the reader with these existential shocks, via her portrayal of the world as it is, Lispector's texts also include a number of what can be considered de deconstructive devices, such as her dedication by the author and her inclusion of a list of 13 possible alternative titles, one of which is the author's name. Each of these possible titles, each of these possible titles are possible readers' commentaries on the text, on the plight of Maccabea. Take, for example, The Hour of the Star, It's All My Fault, or let her deal with it. By presenting these possible readers' reactions prior to the text, Lispector is, in a sense, negating these possible readings. In other words, before the reader enters the text, Lispector has already provided the reader with possible errors in the reader's reading. Lispector is well aware of her audience's inability to see reality for what it is. Specifically, she is aware of their inability to see the working class and the poor at all. She is aware of the ex existential shock that occurs when the middle class are forced to see the reality of their own class and its effect on others. In other words, she is aware of the inherent dangers that her audience, the middle class, is reading her text with their cultural privileges and biases, their blind spots. Utilizing deconstructive devices like the list of 13 possible titles, Lispector is able to both acknowledge that this possible blind spot 
exists, while at the same time, she's engaging in an active intervention with it. In addition, in the Hour of the Star, Lispector explains how she has utilized punctuation in order to delimit meaning. She writes, if instead of a period it were followed by ellipsis, the title would be open to possible imagining of yours, perhaps even depraved and pitiless. In Lispector's two-page dedication titled Dedication by the Author, actually Clarice Lispector, she again acknowledges the reader's possible blind spots. The author is Lispector, not the male narrative, not the male narrator she invented for the book, not Maccabea, the female heroine and protagonist. But you may wonder, of course, the book but you may wonder, of course, the book is written by Clarice Lispector, and yet the dedication's title intervenes or interrupts an easy reading of the book by including what might otherwise seem obvious. Lispector is the author. The author, Lispector, engages in an intervention. She stops the reader, a device she employs throughout the novella. And in these acts of interruptions, she's able to stop the reader of the text from reading the text leisurely or from trying to escape into the text or reading the text as a mere uh, beauty object. In other words, by interrupting the reader through these disruptions, it is as though Lispector is sitting along the reader, stopping the reader from time to time so that we are forced to pause and think about what we have just taken in. Not passive, but active participation is what she wants from the reader. The book, her works, are not meant to be mere entertainment, possibilities from escape from reality, objects of beauty, beautiful language without meaning, um, but rather forays into reality a, reality, a reality many may not be accustomed to encountering. And so these interruptions, these interventions, are important because through them, Lispector is able to create moments where the reader is forced to stop and reconsider, to ask herself, wait, what am I thinking? Or what did I just take in? What does this mean? These interruptions are these little shocks also continually remind the reader that the text is a construction built of text of language. In other words, it is a work of art. The specter's interventions then serve also to nag at the reader to not be lulled by the story, but rather to remain alert, to stay outside the text, to avoid the sleep-like state, hypnotic state, one can drop into when one is absorbed in a text. Because to do so, to become absorbed into the text would mean to drop out of critical awareness. It would be to slide into another form of inertia. And if we slide into the zombie-like state, we are no longer able to think critically. It is that time we have reached the middle of the podcast, which is our time to take a break. If you want to get some uh, candies or cupcakes or cookies or a slice of cake or a beer, Coke or a Fanta or smoke, whatever it is that you want to do, I will be playing a song by the fall from Grotesque. The song is The Container Drivers. It's fantastic, of course, and I will see you on the other end of the song.
container drivers song. Um, so it's not a coincidence that I'm playing the fall, although I play the fall all the time, so it often is a coincidence. But in this case, um, I think when I talked about the fall before, or rather Mark Fisher's essay on the fall, I talked about the um, similarities between Marky Smith's work and life and Lispector's. Um, so I just want to say a few more things about that, because I think that um, by talking about uh, Marky Smith's work. When we go back to Lispector, we can get a better, uh, more illuminated uh, idea. Um, so Marky Smith, of right, the the fall, created work that defied category in the music lyrics and the cover art, as well as the band's resistance to listing their song lyrics in the album's liner notes and the continual breaking apart and reassembling of the band. Right there, uh, he was always. Uh, uh, placing new musicians into the band. So this is a, um, the band itself then continually break apart, breaks apart and then reassembles, resisting any fixed identity. This is also, of course, true with Marky Smith, while at the same time resisting being misunderstood as a spokesperson for any one group. And this is specifically with Marky Smith, not uh, resisting being seen as a spokesperson for the working class. He resisted that role. He resisted all roles. Um, then furthermore, the creation of a palimpsest, right? The, the very songs, the structure of the songs are palimpsesting, uh, palimpsestian. A fabric constructed from multiple discrete and overlapping layers is implicit in all aspects of Smith's work, Marky Smith's work. This is, of course, similar to Lispector's work, right? Both Marky Smith and Lispector utilize paratext. One result of the paratext is, is its simulation of the now, right? Rather than narrating a story in a seamless stream, the paratext created as it is with multiple layers of fragmentary text is similar to the very way that we experience the world. It is, al it is also similar to the way memory works and the way that we think. Fragmentary with bits of text and images from childhood, for example, from yesterday, and also from the imagination, all coalescing into one fluid amalgamation. As a result, such works are inherently nearer to the original lived experience being relayed, like Walter Benjamin's Textum, what he describes as work that incorporates both what is remembered and what is not. The reader, or in the case of the fall, the listener, finds 
themselves experiencing the event being relayed rather than re merely reading about it, which is to say merely being kept outside of the encounter, being described, an outsider observing with observing with the power and relief of distance. In contrast, when we encounter work that is constructed via parrot texts, we find ourselves inside the experience being relayed, not kept safely outside of it. This aspect is political, of course, as Benjamin writes, when we write in a flat manner, giving the reader or listener a sealed off perfect product, the lives being described are at the mercy of the artist or writer creating an inherent hierarchy of power. The writer names the world, the people within it, and as, and as a result, the reader or listener aligns with the writer and is automatically placed above those who are being described. She's in a morally superior position. Conversely, when writers or artists construct from the now, showing the reader or the viewer the world as it is, pressed up against them in that moment with no context or explanation, without the voice of authority, no godlike figure who names and places meaning, the reader or viewer understands implicitly that the world and the people being shown are equal to the writer, the artist, and thus to the reader and her world. In Mark Fisher's writing on the fall, he writes of how Smith's use of the paratext is especially fascinating because his use of paratext itself bleeds out beyond the page of the lyrics out into his life. Not just the music and lyrics, in other words, but the album covers, the interviews, and so on. And I think this is also true for um, the Spectre, right? So in uh, the, the television interview that I uh, mentioned and also um, in other er interviews and in her writings and also at conferences where she spoke, she was always um, complicating things further or um, this is an interesting thing that Marky Smith did. So he didn't do, um, he didn't disavow. He didn't say one thing and then say, that's not true, I didn't say that or... Um, some other similar uh, behavior or act rather he it's almost like he just took uh, um, he just cut things up smaller and smaller and I think the specter did that too so it's a way of constantly res resisting um, any sort of identity not being um, uh, resisting um, being put into any one category or identity being placed into a group and this constant it's a constant labor right this kind of work um, but it, it um, in a way, immune, immunizes one from assimilation, right? The other thing is, especially with Marky Smith, but also with Le Spectre, there's a kind of um, resistance in their, um, in their work and in, their, um, in the way they are in the world. It's like a no, right? When Le Spectre is in the TV interview, um, her stance, the way that she's sitting, her body... Um, the way that she holds her body, the way she speaks, and her answers are all a kind of no. And of course, Marky Smith is the same way. So it's this constant resistance. It's a um, labor. It's work at making oneself not digestible. And I think this is a really important um, aspect um, when we think about Liz Vector's work. Of course, also Marky Smith, but we're talking about Liz Vector right now. So I wanted to throw that in. Um, so now I'm going to go back to where I was before when I was talking about Liz Spector and her work with the text. Um, so another form of intervention that Clarice Liz Spector utilizes occurs in the creation of the text and the very making of it. In her late work, Liz Spector began constructing her work through fragment, specifically 
She would write on scraps of paper receipts, bar napkins, and so on, what was actually happening in the moment. Then she would combine these fragments into a text, sort of through a montage or collaging, right? Uh, when reading such works, the experience one has is of both being in the moment that is being described, as if one is experiencing what is being portrayed, as opposed to being told about it and being kept outside a spectator. The work, in other words, becomes experiential, interactive. The reader is forced into the story and therefore forced into experiencing the reality. In this case, the specter is writing about poverty and abjection. So then the reader is forced to experience something of that. As I mentioned a few moments ago, poverty is incorporated into the novella not only through its subject matter, the portrayal of Maccabea, the non-aspirational heroine of the novella, a young worker who lives in poverty, but also through the structure of the text. First and foremost, the specter incorporates impoverishment through the narrator, Rodrigo's telling of the story. In order to be faithful to the poverty of the story, Rodrigo announces that he must first abide by a number of rules. To begin with, he must begin the novella with no knowledge of how the story will unfold or of its ending. In order to remain faithful to the reality of this story, he must, as he states, relay the story in its raw state. The Spectre writes, This story consists of nothing more than some crude items of raw material that come to me directly before I even think of them. Furthermore, he must not embellish by using decorative language, as he states. And this is the Spectre writing. Like every writer, I'm clearly tempted to use succulent terms. I have at my command magnificent adjectives, robust nouns, and verbs so agile that they glide through the atmosphere as they move into action. For surely words are actions, yet I have no intention of adorning the word, for were I to, for were I to touch the girl's bread, that bread would turn to gold, and the girl, she's nineteen years old, the girl would be unable to bite into it and consequently die of hunger. Another aspect of Lispector's late work is her resistance against the literary, and in her later works, her writing attempts to remain unliterary. One aspect of this approach is through her refusal to follow the usual form of a plot. Another aspect is her refusal to use language as embellishment, decorative. In this excerpt, Lispector not only states explicitly her adherence to resisting embellishment, but also the poverty necessary for writing such texts. First and perhaps foremost, the writer must rid herself of her ego. Though she knows things and has access to high levels of language, for example, she must turn away from these gifts and tend to the work at hand, the aim of the writing instead. In this case, the goal of the hour of the star is to portray reality as it is being experienced. Furthermore, by constructing a text with a number of fragments, which are, which are in turn collaged together, the reader will experience a series of inherent fragments and ruptures within the text, though these breaks will not, may not be explicit. These organic cuts and spaces give the text an inherent feeling of artifice, interrupting the polished professional literary text with its nice, clean conclusions that is so valorized in contemporary literary world. At the same time, these structural cuts result in a sense of disharmony, an overall feeling of chaos. And now we can think of Marky Smith's music again, right? This, um, this resistance against harmony and this um, uh, preference for noise and rhythm. 
The sense of chaos performs the unease Lispector is aiming at relaying. The reader, in other words, when reading the text, ought to feel a sense of discomfort or unease, the same feeling or one of the feelings the protagonist and the text's author is feeling. Returning to the notes and bits Lispector incorporates into her work. The shift in process marked a shift in her work, from her early to mid-work to her late work. In these late works, Lispector's work is constructed through the process of writing in the moment, which is to say that Lispector wrote what was happening in the now, including everyday objects and places in the writing. In The Hour of the Stars, she addresses this, the inclusion of everyday objects in the work, and this is what she writes. Anyway, it seems that I'm changing the way I write, but it so happens that I only write what I want. I am not a professional, and I have to write about this Northeastern girl or I'll choke. She's accusing me, and the way to defend myself is to write about her. I write in bold and severe painter's strokes. I'll be, deal I'll be dealing with facts as if they were the irremediable stones I spoke of earlier. Even though, to get me going, I want bells to peel while I guess at reality. And may angels flutter as transparent wasps around my hot head because this head wants finally to transform itself into an object thing. It's easier. Could it really be that the action is beyond the word? But when I write, let things be known by their real names. The quotidian, in other words, the mundane every day. Here is an example from one of her late stories, The Man Who Showed Up. Lispector writes, It was Saturday evening around six o'clock, almost seven. I went out to buy some Coca-Cola and cigarettes. I crossed the street and headed for Portuguese Manuel's corner bar. As I was thus waiting to be helped, a man with a little harmonica came up, looked at me, played a little tune, and said my name. He said he'd met me at the Cultura Ingress English School, where I had actually only studied for two or three months. He said to me, don't be scared of me. I replied, I'm not. What's your name? He replied with a sad smile in English, what's in a name? He said to Mr. Manuel, the only person here who's better than me is this woman because she writes and I don't. Mr. Manuel didn't so much as blink and the man was completely drunk. I gathered my purchases and was leaving when he said, may I have the honor of carrying your bottle and pack of cigarettes? So here in the short story, or rather excerpt of a short story, we are shown an everyday occurrence, a woman leaving her apartment for the corner bar to pick up some cigarettes and Coca-Cola. I imagine in a typical U.S. writing workshop, it might be suggested that such a piece of writing ought to, uh, it might be suggested that uh, in such a piece of writing, the writer ought to delete this opening, everything leading up to the important meeting. This, that this bit about heading out to buy soda and cigarettes is merely the on-ramp of the story, the quote-unquote writers warming up. And this is precisely the issue. To remove the everyday, the quotidian, from the work is to remove reality from the work. To remove the parts of the work that seem too, quote-unquote, everyday, too banal, too brutal, or to write this to rewrite this boring bit so that it, quote, pops off the page and the is the way we make writing sleek, slick, seamless, and removed from reality. 
And this is precisely what Lispector resists. She rejects this. Instead, in her late work, she adheres to the everyday, the raw material of the world. And in this way, what we, the reader, receives is the world rather than a slate cleaned up version of it. I mentioned a bit, I mentioned a bit ago how Lispector constructed such work, and I'll return to it now. In order to make work that tethers closer to reality, Lispector quite literally wrote what we might call automatically in the moment. Here at the start of the short story, then we can imagine she quite literally wrote down what she was doing as she was doing it, or perhaps more probably moments later. She went down to the bar to pick up some cigarettes and cola, bumped into a man who was drunk. This is what happened, and this is what we get. Again, as, a, as with her other writing devices, this method of writing in the moment, what is happening, allows the reader to enter into the experience being conveyed rather than merely remaining a spectator trapped outside the experience. The Spectre made a practice of engaging in this act of writing in the now, and once she had a number of these bits and fragments, she would collage these disparate bits together. Not surprisingly, not surprisingly, as you might have already realized, this is how our everyday lives are constructed. When we examine them, memory occurs as a series of slides or frames from a film. When I remember things, for example, I don't have this perfect, seamless uh, recall of everything, right? I have these um, bits and um, and uh, fragments of memory, of text, you know, somebody said something, or wait, I read this thing, or I saw this image. This is actually the way that our minds work. This is the way memory works. And this is how she's constructing it. Um, here in an excerpt from The Hour of the Star, Willis Spector addresses this writing of the now here in an excerpt from The Hour of the Star, Lispector addresses this writing of the now explicitly. She writes. I'd like to add by way of information about the young girl and myself that we live exclusively in the present because it is always eternally today and tomorrow will be today. Eternity is the state of things at this very moment. Furthermore, the encounter Lispector chronicles in this story, bumping into a man at the bar who suggests the speaker is, quote, better than he is because she is a writer, unquote, may or may not have happened. We don't know. Lispector may or may not have met a man at the bar who said this thing, and yet this theme of writers being more important than non-writers and, more specifically, members of the working class and the poor, was a topic Lispector was passionate, was passionate about, which is to say she felt quite strongly that this was not the case. In interviews, for instance, she was explicit about this, that writers were not more important than non-writers, and this belief is made clear in this piece of writing. Though the man believes he is less important than the speaker of the story because she is a writer, the story illuminates precisely the opposite. Resistance to knowing how the work will end and to creating a clean, seamless, cohesive piece along with resistance to a literary aesthetic regardless of whether this results in a work that appears quote-unquote ugly. These then are the three main components of Lispector's late work, work that attempts to portray reality, the world as it is, in all of its existential impoverishments. Lispector's insistence that the writer is not more important or better than the non-writer and or not more important or better than the worker is, I think, related to her insistence that she is not a professional writer, something that she repeatedly uh, stated in interviews and elsewhere. Um, 
As Adam Schellhaus writes in Anti-Literature, The Politics and Limits of Representation in Modern Brazil and Argentina, when asked of her outsider yet consecrated position in the Brazilian and Latin American literary traditions, Lispector never hesitated to mark her distance. In the TV interview that I spoke of earlier, when asked about her professionalism, Lispector insists that she is not a professional and that furthermore her freedom is a result of her not being a professional writer. In that same interview, she explains that she writes when she wants to as if her writing were a hobby, something to do to pass the time. In both of these stances, Lispector resists the valorization of the writer and of literature. Here she's commenting upon the distance between the literary world and the world of the poor and the working class, as Shell House writes, against professionalization and etiquette straying from what she called the superficial world of literary writers, Lispector's constructivist approach terms on turns on problematizing the separation between writing and life. The consummation of her vision, what she called a language of life, implies an exodus from the Latin American literary regime of representation. Resisting both the exper experimental writing that could be experienced as mere aesthetic or wordplay and the ident identitarian writing that serves to categorize writing writers according to their identity, Lispector's work does neither. I'm not an intellectual, I write with my body, she writes in The Hour of the Star. Writing from the body and its affects, the writing itself resists categorization. It also insists on its reliance on the wound. The author is hurt, she is traumatized by the world, and this wounding is lifted and dropped into the writing. Examples of this are found in The Hour of the Star, where the male narrator, Rodrigo, writes of the pain of narrating the story of the poverty-stricken protagonist, Maccabea. This also occurs with Clara in Beauty and the Beast or the Enormous Wound, who upon, who upon encountering the reality of poverty in the figure of the beggar she encounters on the side of the street is herself wounded. Indeed, the specter copies her internal world down to the letter as she writes in The Hour of the Star, quote, what I have to do is copy myself out with the delicacy of a white butterfly. The specter was familiar with the literary world both the establishment and with their writing. She resisted it and what she saw as an elite enterprise responsible for creating categories based on hierarchies, a reflection of the class-based culture. Literature, she writes, is a detestable word. It is outside the act of writing. Indeed, in her televised interview, she stated that the writer's role is to speak as little as possible. And in The Hour of the Star, she wrote, I'm absolutely tired of literature. Only muteness keeps me company. If I still write, it's because I have nothing better to do in the world while I wait for death. I'd like to end the podcast by sharing with you an excerpt from the interview, the TV interview I keep referring to. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to end with a very short excerpt from this. Of course, uh, the interview is in Portuguese. So if you um, are fluent in Portuguese or you know the language, then you are lucky. The rest of us will merely listen to the specter talking. Um, and, and not understand. Um, but I wanted to say that um, thank you, as always, for joining me um, listening to this podcast. Um, if you have questions or comments or thoughts or want to reach me otherwise, you can email, email me at themelancholyofclass at gmail.com, and I will do my best to respond to you in a, um, in a reasonable amount of time. I wanted to let you know, too, about the next two podcasts coming up, and, and we air every two weeks. So the next uh, run one will be uh, running on the 18th.
oh sorry <laughs> no on the oh, oh gosh on it'll be running uh, in two weeks about <laughs> any case um the next podcast i will be talking about margaret dura and then the one after that i'll be talking about jean genet so we're taking a turn a little slight turn and then towards the end of the podcast we're going to um return to some philosophy and psychoanalysis. Um, so thank you again for joining me and I will see you in two weeks. Clarice Lispector. De onde vem esse Lispector? Eu não sei. Eu perguntei. É um nome latino, né? E eu perguntei ao meu pai... Desde quando havia espectro na, na, na Ucrânia? Ele disse que de gerações e gerações anteriores. Eu suponho que, ele, que o nome foi rolando, 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 perdendo algumas sílabas e se transformando nessa coisa que é, parece uma coisa lis no peito, em latim, flor de lis. Quer dizer, é um, um, um nome que, que quando aparece quando eu escrevi meu primeiro livro, Sérgio Millier, eu era então completamente desconhecida, é claro, Sérgio Millier diz assim, essa escritora de nome desagradável, certamente um pseudônimo, e não era, era meu nome mesmo. Você chegou a conhecer o Sérgio Millier pessoalmente? Nunca. Porque eu publiquei meu livro e fui embora do Brasil para viajar, porque eu me casei com um diplomata brasileiro, de modo que eu não conheci as pessoas que escreveram sobre mim, eu não conheci. Clarice, seu pai fazia o que profissionalmente? Representação de firmas, coisas assim. Quando ele, na verdade, dava era para coisas de espírito. Há alguém na família de Spector que chegou a escrever alguma coisa? Bom, eu soube ultimamente, para minha enorme surpresa, que minha mãe escrevia. Não publicava, mas escrevia. Eu tenho uma irmã, Elisa Lispector, que escreve romances. E tenho uma irmã chamada Tânia Kaufmann, que escreve livros técnicos. Você chegou a ler as coisas que sua mãe escreveu? Não, eu só soube há poucos meses. Mas não teve condições de não. Eu soube a informação de uma, de uma tia. Ele sabe que sua mãe fazia um diário e escrevia poesia, eu fiquei bobo.